Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to an extra edition of the SITREP podcast from BFBS. This time, a military biography of sorts, a story of thousands of lives saved with just seconds to spare. In 1991, John Nicholl was an RAF navigator flying in a tornado jet when it was hit by an Iraqi missile. He's one of more than 7,000 people saved by the ejection seats manufactured by British firm Martin Baker. But each ejection is just the start of a life-changing story. In John's case, surviving also meant being captured and beaten by Iraqi forces. In a new book, Eject Eject, he charts the history of the seat that saved his life. Originally, it was a terrifying 30-second process to save yourself while tumbling to earth. Now, the seat itself can decide whether it needs to eject a pilot in mortal danger. John has been telling me some of the many stories of those saved by this explosive device. And I was chatting to a couple of mates over a pint, as you do, and we'd all ejected at various points in our career. And what struck me about those stories is that ejecting from a fighter is your last chance to avoid death. It's a life or death decision, eject now or I am going to die. And what came out from those conversations was the varied stories that ejection was just the start of a journey. And the stories that came out about what happened afterwards were just astonishing. And I thought, wow, you know, so I started to investigate going right back to the 1940s, the first people to eject, the first people to test, and then all the way through. And I thought, this is an amazing story of an astonishing invention that saved so many lives that it's worthy of a a better look. And that's how it all came about. And John, what is it like to eject from a plane? Uh, interesting. <laughs> so as you know, Kate, I ejected the first Gulf War as a tornado navigator. Our aircraft, myself, John Peters' aircraft, being hit by a missile. Uh, we were on fire. There was a very real danger that the aircraft would explode. And so whilst we didn't eject within an instant, with the aircraft burning around us, there was a dawning realisation that this jet could explode within a nanosecond. And we said, right, let, we've got to get out, eject, eject, eject. And the first thing that happens is nothing. And nothing happens for about a hundredth of a second. And that one hundredth of a second feels like a lifetime while you're waiting for it to happen. And then technology takes over. The first thing that happens is that the perspective, the cockpit uh, of the aircraft is blasted off on rockets. So it basically goes off either side of you with rockets going past your ears. And then the ejection seat fires. Uh, and so the first stage starts to rise you up on the rails, which are that help hold the ejection seat in place. Your arms are dragged in on a straining straps. Your, your hot shoulder harness pulls you into the back of the seat. Your legs are dragged into restraining straps. And then as you rise up a bit further, the rockets in the pack ignite automatically and you accelerate from zero to kind of something like 150, 200 miles an hour upwards under 18 times the force of gravity in about half a second. And you're exce- and if you're flying along at, let's say, 600 miles an hour or 500 miles an hour, you're hit by a 600 mile an hour wind. And so, and then because our ejection seats, the Mark 10, are completely automatic, it, everything happens automatically. So you're not really aware of what's happening, but there's a fizzing and a buzzing and a tumbling. The seat stabilizes. And as soon as the seat stabilizes, and because of the low altitude that we're at, 
we were at, it then goes into its next phase, which is to release you from the seat. And it cuts you free, basically. Uh, it chops your sh uh, shoulder harnesses off. It unfastens the buckles. It, it, it releases your leg restraints and your arm restraints. The seat falls away. And as the seat falls away, your own personal parachute is withdrawn. Uh, and you, you're then floating down in silence. And that takes, for me, two and a half seconds. To tell that story took, what, a minute and a half. It happens in two and a half seconds. And at that moment where you knew you were going to eject, did you have faith in the equipment? Did you think oh, yeah. you were going? You knew you were going to land safely, did you? No, I mean, it's a curious one. And it's a question that I ask of loads of people whose stories I tell in the book. Because what you have to realise, Kate, is that the ejection seat sits in an aircraft for conceivably 5, 10, 15 years. It is taken out every now and then and it's serviced. And I think every 10 or 15 years, they go back to Martin Baker, who make our seats, to be properly serviced. But for the most part, and you've seen some of this, you know, there's people jumping on it with muddy boots. There's kind of, it's raining on it. It's being thrown around the sky at high G and high speed. And it just sits there for years and years and years until the moment that you pull the handle. And you just have to rely on the fact that it's been well-built, well-made, well-designed and well-serviced. And... For 99.999% of occasions, it is, and the system works as advertised. And during that moment uh, when you ejected, when you were falling to the ground, do you have any rec recollection of what was going through your mind? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I did. So we ejected probably, I think, at about 200 feet in the end, maybe 250. So we had, I'm going to hazard a guess, maybe four or five seconds in the parachute before we hit the ground, before I hit the ground. And I remember two things. I remember watching the tornado flying off over there. So I looked and it was still flying, trailing smoke because it was on fire. And I watched it dip down and impact the ground and explode. And I thought, bloody hell, some bugger's going to see that. Excuse my bad language. Um, somebody, somebody's going to see that because it was just a cloud of burning uh, uh, smoke. Um, and then I thought that ground's coming up really quickly now because it, this is not a parachute kind of that you do a sports jump in or something like that. This is an emergency system. And I think they say it's like hitting the ground if you jump off a, a double-decker bus. Mm. Uh, so I hit the ground. You're meant, we practiced parachute rolls in the gym years before, but I just kind of tried to raise my legs up in the parachute, just, which is the worst thing that you can do. And so I just hit the ground kind of flat on my backside. When you when you saw your tornado going down, um, did you feel uh, you looked at it, you thought, "Wow, someone's going to notice that." But did you feel sad to see it go, or relief that you were safe? I didn't. I had none. You know, my pilot said that he felt a connection with the jet after we ejected. I didn't. Uh, it was just a machine, uh, and as far as I was concerned, we were better out of it than in it. It was going to explode, and. You know, as I tried to tell in the book, I mean, my ejection is not in the book. I've told that story thousands of times before. But one of my friends who ejected in the Gulf, a, a Tomcat pilot is. Uh, and interestingly, he was captured. Uh, sorry, a Tomcat navigator. He was captured and his pilot was rescued. And the whole point about it was that ejecting was the start of their journey and their journeys were totally different. So he was captured and shared a cell with me in some pretty unpleasant circumstances. Uh, his pilot was rescued in an amazing combat rescue. And so it is that journey 
that that the story is really about. And when you say that's a starting point of the story, do you think if you're someone who's had to eject from a plane, it's, it's a life changing moment? Uh, I got a, an email yesterday, or a message on a forum. Uh, a number of people have talked about how they ejected 10, 15, 20, sometimes 50 years ago, and how it still is something that they mull over. For some of them, it still affects them. I tell the story in the book of the first female to eject on a Martin Baker seat. She was a, a university cadet, a UAS cadet, uh, who was on a pleasure trip, a passenger trip in the back of a Harrier, and the jet hit a bird, and Ash Stevenson, who went on to be the commandant of Cranwell, was in the front seat. He was knocked unconscious. His chin was smashed open. His visor was torn off and everything else. He was lucky to survive that. So people say, how can a bird bring down a jet? But it's like if you think of a cricket ball being thrown into your face at 500 miles an hour, it gives a sense of what that's like. And so the ash ejected, not knowing if Kate was going to be able to eject because there was no command eject in, the, in that Harrier. And their post-ejection journey was astonishing because Kate nearly burned to death in the wreckage in the, when she landed. But more importantly, Ash is still affected by that experience 32 years ago. And when we were talking about it for the book, he was in tears. He was in tears describing what he went through, his decision-making process, his what he felt was a lack of honour, having to leave somebody in the cockpit, a passenger that he was responsible for. You know, she luckily survived, but only just, and she was badly injured, and she is still affected 30 years by that because she was really badly burnt and nearly died. And so it is those stories of, A, the development of what happened between the first person to eject back in 1949 on a Martin Baker seat and the last person but those personal stories of survival, of courage, of determination, and of their families and what they went through. And there's some astonishing stories there too. And John, your ejection sleep was a far cry from the original one developed in the 1940s. What was that one like? Well, so you, in your introduction, you talked about the first people to reject taking 30 cents. The first person to reject uh, was a German in 1943, I think it was. And there are very few contemporary accounts uh, of that, but I've included what's known. The first person to eject on a Martin Baker seat was Joe Lancaster, a former Lancaster World War II pilot who became a test pilot. And his aircraft that he was testing in 1949 went out of control. I was lucky to know Joe. His uh, his story starts the book because I he sadly died what three years ago, but I interviewed him and uh, before he died, uh, managed it, and I knew him really well. A really nice guy. So he knew he was going to have to eject, but he thought they, he, they didn't understand ejection seats then. He thought he called it a dangerous damn contraption. <laughs> and he really regarded, they really regarded it with, I'm sitting on what is it in effect is a metal bucket seat full of explosives. And he said, you know, but, you know he said they were really suspicious of this damn thing, really suspicious. But the air, his aircraft was going out of control. He said, if I want to see my wife and kid again, I'm going to have to eject. So he, his process, if you remember what I just said about my process, two and a half seconds like that, his process, he had to first manually jettison the canopy so it blew off. So he was then open uh, to the outside air. He then pulled his red, it was a red hand lead, pulled it down. And what in effect was a bomb in his seat went off. 
blasted him out of the aircraft. A tiny little parachute on the back of the seat then went out to help stabilize the seat. But that's, that was the ed- end of the automatic process. So Joe, who is now tumbling around through the air, I think it's three and a half thousand feet and about 300 miles an hour, has to then feel down his harness. He's tumbling around, his goggles have come off. He doesn't know if he's up or down or spinning or on a roller coaster or a fairground waltz. He has to feel for his seat harness. Underneath his seat harness is his parachute harness. You've got to be really careful you don't get that wrong. So he has to unclip, press the seat harness, undo his straps, push the seat away. He's still flying through the air here and tumbling. Push the seat away so that it falls away. He then goes into free fall himself. He then has to find his own parachute harness again, find the D-ring, pull the D-ring to release his parachute. And it took him 30 seconds, just over 30 seconds. So my description took me, it was two and a half seconds. For Joe, it was 30 seconds and every action was manual. And you know those first ejections that I talk about really were incredible. The seat was, the Mark I seat, Joe's on a Mark I seat, was a, a, an amazing invention, but it was a seat with a bomb under it. Yeah, and um, as you describe it, you know, getting that right, getting the, the right level oh, of explosives not to kill the person sitting on it was, I mean, the whole development took yeah. years, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, so uh, James Martin, who started to develop the seat in the uh, mid-1940s, his friend, Valentin Baker, who is the baker in the Martin Baker Aviation Company, which is not far from where you guys are, uh, just outside Uxbridge, his friend was killed in, a, in an aircraft crash that uh, James Martin had developed. The aircraft, he was a... Uh, Valentin Baker was a test pilot. His best mate, his partner in the business, uh, burned to death in front of James's eyes in a, an aircraft crash. And there's no real contemporary accounts about what James said, but the you know I suspect that he looked at this and thought, I need to try to develop better escape systems. And this was in the the 1940s, in the early 1940s. And so he began to develop an escape system for aircrew in mortally uh, disabled aircraft. And the first ones were uh, just ba- basically bombs in seats. And he basically said to somebody in the factory, in the aircraft factory, he said, right, anybody want to volunteer to test this new device? <laughs> and a chat, I mean, it's amazing. There's a picture of Benny Lynch in the book. Benny Lynch looks like he's going out for Sunday lunch. And he's in, he's got his mustache, he's got his best suit on, his best tie, and he's wrapped up in this stuff and he's strapped into this thing on the ground, and then he tests it on the ground. They go through a number of tests. Two people break their backs testing it. Uh, and as, as James Martin adjusts the explosive charge, he's got a spine in his office in a, in a, that he's borrowed from a surgeon friend of his. He's got bits of spine in the fridge next to the milk where people are going to get the, make their tea at Martin Baker factory. He goes through all of this, and then they have to they test it with sandbags at first, and then the time comes to test it with a live person in the air. And Benny Lynch goes off, does a parachuting course, gets in the Martin Baker test aircraft and blasts himself out over the airfield. And that's the start of the testing that resulted in my life being saved, loads of my mates' lives being saved, and tens of, tens of thousands of other people's lives being saved. I remember you writing about it, John. And, and honestly, the visual images you gave me there of this guy sort of was like spring up into the air like a fireground attraction with the hammer thing. That's uh, what it was. It was, <laughs> it was unbelievable. 
So your story of ejection became very famous because of what happened to you afterwards, yeah. captured yeah. and held by Iraqi forces. Mm-hmm. What was it like to meet and talk to others whose stories are not so well known? Um, so absolutely fascinating. So some of the contemporary ones, as I said, a number of my mates are in the book. And I've never spoken to them about their ejections before. I've just been to one again this morning. He ejected just before the Gulf War. And because of the vagaries of the system and how it happened, he snapped both of his legs uh, in three places. And so his legs were snapped in half uh, when he hit the ground. And the system developed because of that. And that's part of the track that I use in the book to say, right, this is how the system changed. Another friend uh, ejected at really high speed and his neck snapped because of the this they lost the fin of the air, a wing of the aircraft and it was spinning out of control and his neck snapped and he very nearly died in the end he was rescued from a cow pat his, he was face down in a cow pat and dying completely unconscious and a farmer who'd watched do you remember the program 999 Mm. Uh, he watched 999 the night before where they talked about putting people in the recovery position and he said, I've got to do this. I, I know this guy might be injured, but if I don't, he's going to die. And so he saved Ian's life. And, and, and it took him, well, it took him a year and a half to recover, but he's still in pain, what, 27 years after the uh, event. He's still in pain because of that. And so, you know, some of the stories, one of the stories from Vietnam, a guy is shot down. He manages to get uh, over the sea and he's rescued with his co-pilot under an amazing combat rescue with jets flying into bomb attacking forces, helicopters coming in, machine guns going. He's rescued. He goes back to America for a week, sees his wife, says, right, I've got to go back. I've got another month of mature to do in Vietnam. I'll see you in a few weeks. He's shot down again two days later and doesn't see his wife and family for five and a half years. Mm. They're just incredible stories of survival uh, and reconciliation with former enemies, too. And of course, John, one of the things about military training is you practice, you practice, you practice. But practicing for an ejection is just something you can't do. Well, interestingly, that rig that I described, there was when I went through training, uh, there was an ejection rig that you tested on at RAF North Luffenham. I think it's in Leicestershire. You sat and strapped in the seat to pull the handle. It was a very low charge, but it shot you about 15, 20 feet up the rig. I don't think they use even that anymore because right. in many ways, all you need to know is pull the handle as hard as you damn well can. And it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And you do kind of practice in the in kind of classroom situations, strapping in and knowing where all of the equipment is. And you practice in the gym. Yeah. Jumping. Do you remember those old... Um, uh, wooden benches that you had in the kids' gym where you Indeed. jumped off. Well, that's what we used to pa- practice parachuting. So practice kind of jumping nine inches, was it, or 12 inches <laughs> and doing a parachute roll. So you do practice somewhat and you practice the drills, but no, you don't kind of practice ejecting. Although a number of people in the book, some people ejected twice, a number of people ejected twice, some three times. And there's a guy who I think ejected Five times in actual fact. So, you know, you, you you don't practice, but some people have done it more than once. And one of the really interesting things about the story is how the first female RF fast jet pilot stuffed books in her yeah. flying suit to add weight and reduce the risk of ejection injury because they were all designed for heavier men. It's completely different now. But back then, so we're talking about 
the late 80s, the early 90s, when the first females were rightly, after many years, allowed to start training to fly fast jets, all of the equipment was made for men. So uh, one of the first females to learn to fly, Julie, the gloves were the smallest gloves were too big with her. And so our safety equipment fitters had to get the sewing machines and, and actually uh, sew around the fingers so her gloves fitted her hands. The seats were not designed for lighter females. And so some of the first females would put heavy books in because the kick up the backside, literally and figuratively, could damage you. And that, the, the story I told you, the first female to eject, who was a cadet, and that was in 91, I think, was badly injured by the seat. The seat broke her pelvis when she ejected, which is why she ended up in the burning wreckage and she couldn't get out and actually had to get in and rescue her. So, they, But it's completely different now, rightly so, and thank the Lord, that the most modern seats adapt to the weight of the person. They're fully computerised. And indeed, hey, the most modern seat now, where I described pulling the handle or Joe did all of these actions, the most modern seat now is so computerized, so linked into, digitally linked into the, the jet itself, that if the seat thinks that the pilot faces mortal danger, it will eject the pilot without further reference. And I wanted to ask you, John, what do you think about that? Do you like the idea? Do you like it? Well, I mean, again, I think I would be, I would go back to the first uh, ejectees who were really suspicious of the ejection seats. And I would imagine that people now think, hold on, this thing can just shoot me out. But the simple fact is it can save your life. It's not going to do it in every circumstance, just a couple. And so, yes, I think that if I was flying the most modern jet, I would want the most modern seat that gave you that second chance at life, because that's what these things do. They're giving you a second chance at life. And when you went to the Martin Baker factory, home of British-made ejection seats, what was it like for you with such a personal connection to what they make? You you what, the 6,000th and something person who was saved by their seat? I was 6,089, I think. They, I think they're up to something like 7,631 now. It's on the front page of their website. Um, it, for, for many of us, it's a pilgrimage. On the, in the reception centre at Martin Baker, they've got a wall uh, and it's got seven and a half thousand names on it. And you can find your little name and point to it. And I've done it and loads of my mates have done it. And you go, you have, you look, it's an amazing place and they're fantastic people. And uh, you go around the factory. Uh, and I was chatting to the parachute uh, packer who'd been there for, I think, 35 years, he said. And Tony, the guy who's taken me around, said, it's entirely possible, John. That Raj packed your parachute in your tornado. And when you think of it like that, and when you go and speak to the people who put the tiny little components together or who use, who use the metal grinding machines to make the base of the seat, some of them have been there longer than I was flying, and they have seen thousands and thousands of lives saved by their devices. So it's a pilgrimage to go and thank these people. And do you know what? I think they're really, this, it's kind of quite, they're grateful that you go and say thank you. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. I'm more <laughs> grateful than you are because I'm here. And so, you know, it's, it's an amazing place to go. And it is the book, your attempt to honour a piece of equipment and say thank you to those people. Definitely. So not just uh, the people who designed this, the seats, the early seats, who manufacture them, but the armourers, the people in the, in the military who service them, who look after them who take them out, you know, kind of change little bits and pieces and put them back into the jet. 
we rely or we relied on the fact that we would fly on this damn curious contraption that people were suspicious of. And when we faced mortal danger and reached down and pulled that handle upwards, we just relied on the fact that it would work. And for that, we have a lot of people to thank, Kate. And John, um, I'm going to ask you a cheeky question, um, and you can throw me out of a plane if you like. <laughs> but but um, I understand you you have like lifelong um, injuries or results of, of your ejection. Yeah. And um, irrespective of how well you've survived, you almost finished yourself off with an accident did, yeah. this week. Yeah, so I've got a bit of a, a, a niggly lower back because of an ejection industry injury from 32 years ago. I had a heli- quite a bad helicopter incident in 97, I think, where I really damaged the discs at the back of my neck. And to cap it, and so they've niggled for 30 odd years. Last week, sober as a judge, Mark, mind you, Kate, I fell down that darn stairs. I'd honestly just tripped. I shouldn't and laugh. You know those, you know those comedy uh, circus acts where they fire somebody out of a can. Well, I I did that into the brick wall at the bottom of the stairs. So I hit the brick wall with the top of my head, knocked myself out, uh, crushed the discs in the back of my neck again. My wife thought I was dead. She was. She had the wills out, looking to see what she was in for. My daughter saying, "Hold on, what do we get? What do we get? What do we get?" But I knocked myself out. It was. You know, I, I'm, I'm okay. I, you know, I'm having physio every day. But yeah, I did nearly, I, I didn't get finished off in a couple of heli, uh, aviation incidents, really bad ones, and nearly got finished off on the darn stairs in my own flipping house. John Nickel, it's been a pleasure speaking to you and seeing that you're still okay and alive to tell the tale. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, Kate. Thanks very much. News, discussions, and analysis. This is Sitrep. <laughs>